0: All right, well, as many of you know, we had a trip to Mexico last weekend, and uh, about everybody on the on the team got sick in some form, uh, but uh, I think everyone has, has gotten pretty much better except Rick D'Amico, and he's still having a lot of trouble with his respiratory system and his circulation in his legs. So I want to pray for him real quick before we start. Father, I, I thank you for the good things that you did on our Mexico trip last weekend, Lord, the, the blessing that, that we were able to um, give to the kids and the blessing that they were to us. And Lord, we just ask for your healing touch now on Rick D'Amico, that you would touch his body, that you would bring healing to him, Lord, that he would sense your presence with him this morning, today, and that you would raise him up back to, back to health. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, we have been doing a series on the book of Ruth, and today we are in Ruth chapter three. And Ruth Chapter Three is really the climax of the book. After after chapter three, things kinda kinda work themselves out, and, and Ruth and, and I shouldn't give away the ending, but you know it. Ruth and Boaz live happily ever after, kind of thing. But Ruth three is really really the climax. The tension reaches its its highest points. And I gotta warn you it's gonna get dicey, okay? It's gonna get scandalous. Ruth is about to heat things up in this story, and it might make you feel uncomfortable. And if it does, I'm sorry, but the Bible is an adult book, okay? It's not rated G. It's not even PG sometimes. It has some adult stories in it. I was was looking this week at at this children's bible that I bought for my boys, it's called the Action Bible. And it's a comic version of the Bible. It was made by a guy who works for Marvel Comics. He's a Christian. And he he just I think does a fantastic job with the Bible. Has most of the of the stories in the Bible with the kind of the Marvel comics and and it's just very interesting for, for kids and I think even for for youth, even for adults like myself. I enjoy looking through it and, and reading it to the kids. And so um, I, I decided how—I I was curious, how did he handle this guy? How did he handle the, the story of Ruth? Because it's in this book, in the Action Bible. So I turn there, and I'm reading through, and it has Ruth chapter 1, and, and it's pretty, pretty close to the actual story, and Ruth chapter 2. And I was like, okay, how is he going to handle Ruth chapter 3, right? How are you going to do this for kids? He just didn't. He skipped over it. <laughs> anyway, he went right to Ruth chapter 4, and so— Boaz, in chapter two, Boaz and Ruth are having like a meal, and then, then they get married. And it's like, oh, it works out. And so I was like, yeah, you know, chapter three isn't PG. It just, you can't, can't include it in the action Bible. The real Bible shows its characters, warts and all, it gives us adult stories. And the reason for that is that the Bible is not primarily a bunch of stories about good people to emulate. I think that's often how we treat it, and there are a lot of good examples in Scripture. But the Bible is primarily a book about a great God who redeems broken sinners. A faithful God who gives grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And a sovereign God who is working out his good plan even when we mess up and our circumstances look hopeless. That is the theme of the Bible and it's the point of the book of Ruth. If you try to read Ruth as this moralistic book filled with good examples to follow, you're going to be confused. Okay? You're, going to get, you're going to get to chapter 3 and say, what is this? But if you read Ruth as a book about a God who gives grace to flawed people and has a plan for them, it will encourage you in your faith and it will point you to Christ. The, the author of Hebrews says that the entire scriptures were given for our encouragement to give us hope. And Ruth can do that for you if you read it in the right way. So quickly, let me recap very quickly before we get into chapter three. For those of you who might not have been with us the, the last few weeks, Ruth chapter one starts out with a couple, Elimelech and Naomi. They have two small boys and they're, they're Israelites. They're living in Israel and they decide to move to Moab. Moab is a pagan country next to Israel. And in Moab, they worship these pagan idols. They worship Molech. He's a very evil demonic idol where people would sacrifice their children to him and so it's a it's a terrible pagan place but basically uh Israel is in the middle of a famine things aren't very good and so Naomi and and Elimelech look over at Moab and they say hey the economy is doing better over there I think we can get a job over there I think we can do a little bit better for ourselves and so they take their young boys and they move to Moab and God in the scriptures he explicitly forbids this He forbids it in the Mosaic law. He says, do not move to these pagan nations for two reasons. One, they can pull you into idolatry. They will tempt you to worship their idols. So that in itself should be enough of a motivation. But he also says, look, even if you think that you can somehow resist that, God says they will they will pull your children into idolatry. Your children will grow up, they will marry their children, their wives, their husbands, they will your children will marry them, and they will pull your children into idolatry. And so even if you think, well, I can, I can hold off, I, I won't give into idolatry, God says, don't do it because your children will get pulled into it. And yet Elimelech and Naomi said, Oh, we don't care. We're going to go anyway. And so they moved to Moab. And the irony here is if God had blessed them in Moab, if God had blessed them and the kids had grown up and everything went great, I think probably what God warned would have happened. The kids, we see the kids marry these Moabite wives and the kids probably would have got pulled into idolatry and then eventually the parents would have got pulled into idolatry. And so if God had blessed them and made their lives perfect, they all probably would have walked away from God and become idol worshipers. And so instead of that happening, God allows Elimelech and these sons to die. And so Naomi is forced to return home to her family. She's an old widow. She doesn't have much hope for getting remarried, and she has no way to to provide for herself. And so her only hope, her only choice, really, is to go back to Israel, where her family lives, and hope that her family will take care of her, at least give her a little bit of food and some some shelter. And so she goes back, and I think that's God's grace. I think God's grace, which obviously she doesn't see— is, is allowing these bad things to happen so that she'll go back to the people of Israel and go back to God, ultimately. So she goes back, and her daughters-in-law, initially, they start to go with her. And that was, that, that was normal, because in this culture, in the ancient world, there's a certain duty that you have to your parents. You have to stay with them, even your in-laws. And so the daughter-in-laws, go, they go with Naomi, but eventually she stops, and she's like, Hey, what are you guys doing? Like, Why are you coming with me to Israel? Right? Don't come back with me and worship Yahweh. Like, that'd be crazy. Stay in your own culture. Stay with your own people. Worship your own gods. That's what she tells them. Go back to your people, back to your gods. Great advice, Naomi. Right? Real godly, right? And so as we, as we read Naomi, we get the sense that she's not a real godly woman. She's pragmatic. She does things that make sense from a human perspective. She says, oh, the economy's good in Moab. I'll move over there. And then when she goes back to Israel, she says, hey, why would you guys, like, move cross-culture with me? Like, why would—just why, stay in your own culture. Worship your own gods. She's pragmatic. She makes sense from a human perspective, but she's not real godly. And when she gets back to Israel, she doesn't repent. She doesn't say, oh, you know what? My husband and I, we made a terrible choice to go to Moab, and things didn't work out, and I, we, I feel terrible that we, that we chose to do that. Instead, she comes back and she blames God. She says, call me bitter. Right, the 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 god I I went away full and God has sent me back empty. I'm so angry at God. She's just not a real godly woman. She doesn't realize that her own choices have set her up for some of these some of these uh, some of these tragedies that have happened to her. And I'm not you know what, I'm not trying to pick on Naomi here, honestly, because I think Naomi is just like all of us. We, we do the same thing. We make bad choices, sinful choices, and then bad things happen. and We have a tendency to blame God. I get that. I understand that. But my point is that many of you, I think, and many of us have this tendency to, um, to, to kind of resonate with this idea that God is kind to the broken. God is kind to broken Naomi. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But I think it's probably more accurate to say that God is merciful to the undeserving. He's merciful to the undeserving. Naomi does not deserve his favor here. And yet God cares about her. He's going to redeem her. He has a plan for her life, even though she's a sinful person and she's blaming him. God has a plan for her. He's kind to her. And the first thing, the first part of his good plan for her is he gives her Ruth. And she doesn't see this initially, but Ruth is a daughter-in-law who's absolutely loyal to her, and I think that's part of God's plan for Naomi. So, Ruth and Naomi go back to Israel, and then in chapter 2, things start to look up. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now, this is the author, in verse 1, this is the author introducing a very eligible bachelor for Ruth. And I know that it doesn't seem that way to us. Actually, in the West, you know, in Western America, it seems kind of creepy, right, that a, wed- a widow would marry, like, the relative of her dead husband. Like, we were like, oh, it's kind of weird. But that's, that, that's how things were done in ancient Israel. Uh, the relative of the dead, the relatives of the dead husband were called kinsmen redeemers. And it was, it was the job for one of them. One of them needed to marry the wife of their dead relative, and the first child that they had with that wife, the first child that man had with that wife, would carry on the name of the dead, of, of the dead husband, the dead relative. Are you following me so far? Okay, so say, say I die, and Amy marries my brother, and the first child would carry on my name if, we didn't, if Amy and I didn't have any children, if that makes sense. So that's the job of the kinsman redeemer, but that's not the only job. It's also the job of the kinsman-redeemer to purchase any property, any inheritance that that dead relative has sold or has lost in some some way. So Elimelech probably sold his property when he moved to Moab. But God wants that property to be passed on to his son. So the job of the kinsman-redeemer would be to marry Ruth and then to buy back Elimelech's property so that he can give that property to the firstborn son. And that firstborn son will carry on the name of the dead husband and and have his inheritance, have his property. So you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to do this. But we learn that that Boaz is a man of standing. Literally, in the Hebrew, he's a man of valor. This idea he's very courageous in battle uh, and that he he has good social standing, he has a good reputation, and he he also has some money. He's well off. He's a man of standing. And so Ruth just happens, just happens, to start gathering in his field in verse 3. And that's the author saying God is working. He's bringing her to his field. And Boaz sees Ruth, and he's like, man, she is hot, and she's cool, and I like her. And, and Naomi finds out, and Naomi is excited about this, and so the suspense builds, right? It's like, like you know, this just seems like a match made in heaven, literally. Like, when are these, when are these guys going to get married, right? And you're, you're excited in chapter 2, but then— There's kind of an anticlimactic ending at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. It says So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother in law. So summer has gone by, the harvest is done, and Ruth is still living with Naomi. When I was in college, uh, the girls had a saying that they really wanted a ring by spring, right? Bling by spring. Uh, and, and basically they're saying they want to be engaged by the end of their spring semester of their senior year, right? Then they have the MRS degree, which is why some of them went to college. And so that, I think for Ruth, though, instead of a ring by spring, I think she wants a wedding shawl by fall, right? I mean, that would be ideal. It'd be ide- really, it's ideal. She's a, she's a widow, um, and so winter is going to be a hard time for her. Winter is a starving time for poor people. You can gather grain during the fall and during the summer, but come winter, you're not going to have a lot of food. And so the ideal for Ruth would be to be married to Boaz or to somebody by winter. And so I'm sure she's hoping it's going to happen, but nothing's going on here. And I th- we're going to see in chapter 3 that the reason that Boaz doesn't move on her is that he thinks he's too old. He thinks he's too old. He's probably in his 40s, probably, probably about twice her age, probably a, widow, a widower himself. He's too old, he thinks, and there's another kinsman redeemer, another relative who's more closely related to that dead husband, to dead husband, and he's younger. And so, you know, Boaz is looking at Ruth. He's like, man, I like her. I'm, you know, I'm attracted to her, but man, I'm old. She wouldn't want an old guy like me, and you know, there's a younger kinsman redeemer who's closer to her, and she'd probably want that guy. And so that's what he thinks. And Ruth, she doesn't indicate her affection for Boaz because she doesn't think Boaz would want her. In chapter 2, she at one point she bows down before Boaz and she calls herself his slave. And the word she uses for slave there is the lowest kind of slave. There is multiple kinds of slave in Israelite society. But the lowest one would be a foreign slave who, who could not move up socially. Some slaves could marry their master, but the lowest slave could not marry their master. They could not move up in society. And so Ruth thinks that, yeah, I know Boaz is attracted to me physically, but I don't think he, could, he would actually marry me. I don't think he would actually go through with it. It's just too big of a social gap. And so it reminds me almost of two insecure teenagers. Right? And so, like, they, they both, like, they like each other, but they don't think the other person would like them, right? And so the guy's like, oh, I like her. She's, you know, oh, she wouldn't want to date me. And then the girl's like, oh, I like him, but he wouldn't want to date me. And that's kind of what's going on here. And so nothing's happening, even though they both like each other. And so finally, Naomi just says, man, enough of this, right? Enough is enough. It's time to force the issue, time to bring these lovebirds together. And so that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? So that's the Hebrew for, Ruth, you need a man, okay? You need a husband. It's time. Time to find somebody to provide for you. And so Naomi begins to concoct a plan on how this is going to happen. And that should concern us, okay? Because Naomi doesn't have a good track record here with making plans, right? She, she's very pragmatic, She's not very godly, all right? She went to Moab. She told her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab. And so as we continue reading, we should expect that she's going to make a plan that that may be pragmatic, but it's not going to be honoring to God. Verse 2, "...is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor." Okay, so she reminds, she reminds Ruth, Boaz is your best option. He's a, he's a, a relative, right, a relative of, of on, on the dead husband's side. He's a kinsman redeemer. He likes you, and he's well off, right? He's got all, all three traits that we need here. And tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, what, what this mean? This is really hard for us to understand because we're not agrarian at all. But the idea here is during the harvest, they would go through their fields, and they would get the wheat and the barley, and they would gather it together. I don't know if you— you have any idea what wheat is or barley, I, ho- I hope you can imagine this, um, they would gather it and they would, they would tie it up. They would gather it in a bundle and they would tie it up in a bundle. And so the farmer and his servants would be going through the feet, gathering it, tying up into bundles. And so when the harvest was done, you would, the field would just be filled with these bundles of grain, bundled with the stalks and everything. And so then when that was finished, they would gather, the farmer and her, his servants would gather up these stalks, these bundles, and they would take them to the top of a hill, a really high hill. And each village would, at least ha- would have at least one of these. A high hill, and at the top of the hill, they had pounded down the ground. And they'd made kind of like a big floor, a big circular floor. It'd be pounded clay or pounded dirt. And they would, t- they would go up there, and it's a big area. You could have multiple farmers up there at the same time. And you would take your grain up there, and then in, in the kind of mid to late afternoon, their, their climate was very similar to ours. It was a Mediterranean climate. And so mid-afternoon, late afternoon, the breeze... The marine layer would begin to come in off the ocean, off the Mediterranean. So the, a breeze, a strong wind would begin to come in. Definitely in the fall it would. And so the farmer would go up there and you'd be trampling on your grain. And then you'd get a pitchfork and you would toss it up in the air. And the chaff, which is like the stalk, which you don't eat, that would blow away in the wind because it's very lightweight. And then the grain would come back down. And so you'd just keep doing this and you'd be tossing it and the, the chaff would be blown and the grain would come down. And after doing that for hours, by nighttime, you would have a big pile of grain. And at that point, then, it's too late for you to haul your grain all the way back down to your farm, to your your silos. But you can't just leave it there because there there are thieves who will come and steal it. And so you would basically pack yourself a picnic as a farmer. you'd, You'd stay there, you'd eat some food, have some drink, and then you would go to sleep, you'd spend the night guarding your grain, and then in the morning, you would bring it back down. And so the idea here is that Naomi thinks this is a perfect chance for Ruth to meet with Boaz privately and convince him to marry her, right? She, she couldn't, in this society, she couldn't, couldn't just go up to him in the field and say, hey, can we, you know, can we have a DTR? Can we have a defining the relationship talk? Like, how are you doing? Do you think I'm eligible? You know, it, it wasn't appropriate for her to do that in front of other people. But, but, but Naomi thinks, okay, now is your chance. It'll be dark. You can go up to, to Boaz. But we're still left with the question, well, how exactly is Ruth going to convince Boaz to marry her? What, what is she going to do here? So we're going to find that out. Verse 3. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. And down doesn't always have to mean literally down, but go to the threshing floor. And I lost my place. But don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet. And lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So this is where things get scandalous, all right? This is where things start to heat up. Uh, Naomi says, go wash yourself, put on perfume, put on your best clothes. This is not Naomi saying, you know, Ruth, you haven't been wearing deodorant lately. I really wish you would clean up. No, what she's saying is, Ruth, go get ready for a date, okay? It's time. Go put on that nice dress that you used to wear. Uh, Get that that perfume, that midnight in Moab that, that you used to put on. And it's time for you to make yourself attractive, make yourself desirable, put on makeup, you know. You've been working out in the fields, but now it's time to, to make yourself look good. And I want you to go, go up to the threshing floor, go to the threshing floor, and spy on Boaz. Watch him. And after he is full with food and with wine, and he's feeling good, he's finished his work, he's, he's had his good meal, had a little bit of wine, and he lays down, then you need to sneak over, Uncover his feet and lie down next to him. And then, he, and then do whatever he tells you to do. Well, like I said, this is scandalous. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to begin to see what Naomi has in mind. And it gets even worse when you realize that feet in Hebrew, feet in Hebrew can refer to any part of the body below the waist, and it can be a, a euphemism for genitals. So Naomi's plan is becoming clear. She wants Ruth to seduce Boaz, so that he will sleep with her and then feel obligated to marry her as the wife of his dead relative. He could not just sleep with her and then, say, and then say, you know, forget you, get out of here. If he sleeps with her as the wife of his dead relative, he will be socially obligated now to marry her. He'll have to. And I know some, actually, I want to be honest here, some scholars have tried to get around this. I shouldn't even say scholars, some pastors uh, they have tried to get around this by saying, they want to argue that there was this, this ancient Middle Eastern custom where uh, typically a man would propose to a woman, that was cultural, but they want to argue that one day out of the year, on, on the day when the men are threshing, a woman could go up and like grab onto the guy's feet, and then that would be the sign that she wants to marry him. So it's kind of interesting, but the trouble is there's no biblical evidence for that. You, you won't see that anywhere in scripture, and as far as I can tell, there's no extra biblical evidence for that, no historical evidence for that. Uh, And I'm not not claiming to be the greatest biblical scholar, but I just haven't, as I researched it, I didn't find any evidence for that this week. So it's a nice-sounding theory. It might be true, but I don't see any evidence for it. Instead, I think it's more likely that Naomi does not want that other kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth. Remember, there's a younger guy who's closer. He's got first dibs on Ruth. But for whatever reason, I think Naomi does not want him to marry Ruth. If she goes through the normal channels... And she goes to her family, and she's like, hey, guys, we need to get a, a, you know, a kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth. Then that guy will have first dibs, and she doesn't want that. And so I think she's trying a back-channel strategy here to get Boaz and Ruth to hook up so that Boaz will marry her. And remember, she doesn't trust God, right? She's, she's a pragmatic woman. And so Ruth agrees initially to this. Remember, in this society, deference to your elders, deference to your parents is very important. So initially, Ruth agrees. Verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. So he's, even if there's other people around, he's removed. You can't see him. He's in the dark at the far end. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And we'll stop there, just we'll pause. So Ruth is hiding out, she's spying on Boaz, and you can, can you imagine what this must have been like for her? I mean, her heart must have been pounding, and then finally he lays down, and she goes over to him, and she uncovers him, and she lays down next to him, and he doesn't wake up. I mean, I'm sure she probably assumed that he's just going to wake up right away, but he doesn't. Maybe he's had too much wine, or he's tired, or whatever, but he is out. He's just snoring. And, and you can imagine, like, I, I'm sure she didn't go to sleep. Like, she's just laying there wide-eyed, her heart's pounding, and the dude is just sleeping next to her. And maybe that goes on for hours. And so it's—the it's te- tension, I'm sure, was just killing her. Finally, verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked, and we'll pause there. So something finally wakes up Boaz, maybe he brushes against Ruth or something, and suddenly he's wide awake, and he turns over, and literally in the Hebrew it says, behold, a woman. (laughs) The idea is that he is completely shocked, okay? He would be probably less surprised if there was a lion, like, attacking him. Like, he could handle that. He's a man of valor, but a woman. It's like, what would I do with this? Uh, you know, he's, he's a farmer. He's, he's, he's comfortable on the farm, but he's not really a ladies' man. And so finally, it's about all he can say is like, oh, oh, who, who, who are you? And Ruth's response here is really, really interesting. Verse 9, who are you? He said, I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Remember Naomi's instructions to Ruth. They were simply for Ruth to say her name and then just let Boaz tell her what to do, right? And we, we get the idea there, what, what Naomi probably has in mind. But instead of doing that, Ruth changes the game plan. She calls an audible here. She says, I'm, she, instead of letting Boaz tell her what to do, she tells Boaz what to do. She says, I'm Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. That is not Ruth saying, uh, Boaz, I'm cold. Can you give me a little more of the blanket, right? When my wife does that, she takes like the whole blanket, and then I'm freezing. That's not what's going on here, okay? This is a Hebrew way for Ruth to say, I want to marry you. Make me your wife. Garment is the same word in Hebrew as wings. So what she's saying is, spread your wings over me, bring me under your protection, bring me into your house as your wife. I want to marry you. She is proposing to him, I want to marry you, Boaz. Take me to be your wife. She's not trying to trick him. Okay, she's not trying to manipulate him into marrying her. She's not trying to get him to do something that he will regret in the morning. She's making it very clear who she is and what she wants. All right, she's saying, with her, with her clothes and her perfume, she's saying, I'm a very desirable woman. Okay, I'm, I'm hot. But with her words, she's making it very clear that he needs to be committed to her in marriage. Okay, she's saying, if you like what you see, Boaz, put a ring on it. All right, You need to marry me. Really, that's what she's saying. And for that response, Boaz calls her a, a noble woman. In a very, very compromising situation, her words prevent her actions from being misunderstood. And so Boaz calls her a noble woman. Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. We'll pause there. Guys, if you're dating a girl, don't call her your daughter. That's weird. But they did that in the old days. I, I don't know why. Um, Anyway, I'm not going to say any more about that. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you have showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So Boaz is absolutely thrilled, right? He is delighted that Ruth wants to marry him. He assumed that she wanted a younger guy. uh, And so he says, I would love to marry you, Ruth, absolutely. There's just one problem the other kinsman redeemer has first dibs. And so he says, Stay here for the night. In the morning, we're going to work this out, we're going to figure this out. And some people have said, well, why did Boaz tell her to stay there for the night? You know, what did he have in mind? Did he want to have sex with her? I don't think so, okay? Uh, the, like I said, the Bible is an adult book, okay? And when characters in the Bible have sex, the Bible's pretty open about it. It doesn't hide that fact. It'll say that the man lie with the woman, laid with the woman or the man went into the woman. It's pretty graphic, but it doesn't say anything like that here. And so what I think happened, and what I, what I, what I think the reason Boaz tells Ruth to stay there is because for protection. We take it for granted in the Western world that a woman can go anywhere at any time, but that wasn't the case in the ancient world. It was dangerous at night. There were thieves, there were bandits. That's why Boaz is staying out all night guarding his grain, and so he's not going to send this girl that he wants to marry back home in the middle of the night. It's not safe. So he says, stay here for the night. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning But got up before anybody could be recognized, and he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Boaz sends Ruth home early in the morning to avoid the town gossips, and he gives her a lot of grain, about 75 pounds. So Ruth, she may be pretty, but she's, she's, she's strong, man. She can handle it. And so, I mean, she's the ideal woman, right? I mean, actually, a lot of, I'll just, this is a side but a lot of commentators think that Ruth, in, in the Jewish structure of the Bible, the Jewish Old Testament is just like our, or the Jewish Bible is just like our Old Testament, but the order was different. And a lot of people think that Ruth came right after Proverbs. And so what is the last chapter in Proverbs? It's Proverbs 31. And so a lot of people think that Ruth is kind of, kind of a characterization of, of Proverbs 31. I don't know if that's true, but, uh, you know, she's a good woman. She's character. She's pretty and she's strong. So she goes back to Naomi. Naomi is thrilled. Uh, Remember, Naomi doesn't know what's going on. She's probably up all night worrying. Ruth isn't sending her Twitter updates, and so she doesn't know what's happening. And so she's excited, and she says, Ruth, Boaz is going to take care of this today. He's that kind of man. He has that kind of character. He's not going to leave you hanging. He's going to deal with this. And so we will see the outcome next week with with, with Pastor Dean. Now, I have two quick applications to this. I told you at the very beginning that Ruth is not primarily about people to emulate, and that is true. However, there is one good example to find in this passage. Uh, In compromising situations, we can still do what is right. We see that very clearly with Ruth and Boaz. Naomi puts them in a very compromising situation, and yet they are still able to do what is right. And we can do that too by God's grace, by God's power. Whether the the, the, the situation that you are in is your fault or not, you can still do what is right. If you're with someone of the opposite gender who's not your spouse and you're alone and there's mutual attraction, you can still do what's right. If you're on the computer alone at night and porn is one click away, you can still do what's right. If you have access to someone else's money and you need some money and you could take it and no one would know, you can still do what's right. If you're in a situation where if you tell the truth, you're going to get into trouble. But if you just tell a lie, you'll avoid the whole problem and no one will ever know. You can still do what's right. In all of these tempting situations, you do not have to give in. The world says that if temptation is strong enough, especially sexual temptation, it's just natural to give in. And movies even try to make you feel disappointed if their characters have a very romantic evening and then they they don't have sex. They try to make you feel disappointed. And yet this story shows that by God's power, and by his grace, it is possible to do what is right, even when sin is very tempting. If our love for God is stronger than our desire for sin, we can do what is right. The second thing that we're going to, that we see here, and I'm going to just very briefly point this out, because Pastor Dean is going to really hit on this point next week, but it's the fact that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, and you may say, well, that's kind of a stretch well, throughout most of church history, from the New Testament through the early church and on, most of church history, people have seen the story of Boaz and Ruth as a metaphor of the story of, of us and Christ. That we come to Jesus. And we come with nothing. We are destitute. We are hopelessly poor. We are impoverished. We have nothing to offer him. Nothing to make him say, oh, you're, you're, a, great, you're a great match for me. We just come to him. And we throw ourselves at his feet and we say, Lord, I have nothing to offer but myself. Please take me under your protection. Take me under your wings. And Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He is our older brother who has done everything to buy us out of slavery, to purchase us an inheritance that will never ever end in heaven. And he takes us, he receives us gladly. Gladly. All you have to do is come to him humbly, repentance, trusting in him as your Lord and Savior. And he will receive you gladly he is our kinsman redeemer let's pray lord there was a lot in this chapter that we looked at and kind of like drinking out of fire hydrant lord but i just pray that what we what we talked about today lord that you will take it and use it to impact us we thank you god that you are a god who is orchestrating stories and even the sins of people cannot stop your plan in fact Though you do not, you are not the author of sin. You take sin into account, and you are even able to use sinful choices to ultimately bring about your good purposes, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God who redeems us, who loves us, who has a plan for lost and broken sinners, who, who even blame you for their problems, that you still care about us, and you are working to redeem us. And so, Lord, I pray that this week we would go out trusting you more and resting in your promises for us. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please, benediction. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. May you go this week living in the freedom and the joy of being gods because you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who is your kinsman, redeemed.